The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. You can support this series by coming to a live event, spreading the word, or making a donation. Find out more at theinterval.org. Thanks for listening. Uh, thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you, and welcome to The Interval. Thanks so much for coming out tonight. Uh, for Jonathan Keats, this is going to be a fantastic talk. I'm really glad for you to be here. Um, so uh, this, is, this is a really fun night for us because we actually have uh, a lot of friends in the audience, a lot of uh, present and future speakers for us in the audience. Um, Rachel Sussman is here tonight, who is actually our second speaker ever in this series, before we were even officially open. Uh, and she's also spoken in our main Long Now series. We're, we're thrilled uh, that she could be here tonight. Uh, we have our next two speakers after tonight. Uh, on April 21st, Patrick House, who's here, is going to be speaking um, about uh, how uh, modern uh, research on uh, brain parasites can uh, connects with ancient Egypt and tells us things about schizophrenia and uh, and it also involves cats. So <laughs> I I love trying to summarize uh, our speakers. We have <laughs> amazing topics. It's going to be an incredible talk. Uh, and we also uh, have D. Fox Harrell here tonight, and uh, Fox, who's uh, from MIT and is also uh, here in the area for a bit working with uh, the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences, CASBIS at Stanford. Um, this is a new partnership, and we're going to have a whole uh, series of talks. Fox is our first talk in that series, uh, and that will be coming up on May 5th. Um, and uh, but uh, to, to get to tonight's uh, talk, um, it's an, uh, part of another great partnership that we have. Um, Zero One from San Jose are a great uh, arts and technology organization. Uh, this is the second talk that we've uh, put together with them. And uh, I want to bring up Jamie Austin now uh, from Zero One to, to talk a little bit more about what they do, and uh, tonight's speaker, Jonathan Keats. Give a big round of applause for Jamie. Thank you, Jamie. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Austin. I'm the curator and director of programs at Zero One, and we're a Silicon Valley-based arts organization where art meets technology to shape the future. And we're excited. We've been partnering uh, with the Long Now Foundation to help kind of seed artists into this talk series that's looking at um, art, time, and technology. And as Michael said, this is the second uh, talk that we've been able to partner on here. So thank you all for joining us. Um, both of our organizations are really focused on interdisciplinary practice. And I'm sure most of you think of yourselves as cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary, which is why you're here and interested in these sorts of topics. So thank you. And that's certainly something that we all celebrate. Um, at Zero One, our goal is to really support risk-taking artists who are thinking deeply about societal and cultural challenges and changing the way that we see the world. So speaking about seeing and about vision, um, I'm very excited tonight to be able to introduce San Francisco-based artist and experimental philosopher Jonathan Keats. Jonathan is an artist who I love meeting for coffee because every time I do, he blows my mind and I have to think about what he's told me for quite a long time. 
um, and he's someone that we've been, you know, talking about projects with for years and fits so perfectly with what Long Now is doing here. Tonight he will be sharing his century and millennial or millennium camera projects with you, among others, and also give you a hands-on opportunity to test out his technology, which is kind of this interesting combination um, of old and new and looking at long-term effects and short-term actions that we can take to connect the two. So there's a hands-on element that everyone gets to participate in at the end if you so choose. Um, and tonight he'll also throw in topics like space and cloning. Maybe not cats, but I am a fan of those too. Um, but he has a lot of great projects to share with you tonight. So please join me in welcoming Jonathan Keats. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Michael. Within the next 30 minutes, I'm going to tell you what I will be doing for the next 5,000 years. But I want to start with something a little more modest, to tell you about the time that I sat in a chair and thought for 24 hours. The year was 2000, and I had this idea that I wanted to be an artist and didn't really know how to make anything like painting or drawing or the various skills that one is supposed to have. So I figured that perhaps I should get into conceptual art. And as I explored that possibility, the more that I looked into it, the more that I found that conceptual artists seemed to be sort of cheating a little bit in terms of there was a concept, but it was also instantiated in all of these things, these objects. So I figured that I could outdo them. There was no reason why I shouldn't be able to. And while maybe in retrospect this all seems a little bit pretentious, I decided that what I would do is that I would make conceptual art that was purely conceptual. And that naturally involved thinking. So what I did was I persuaded a gallery, Refusalon, that, that's south of Market, or was once upon a time in San Francisco. I persuaded them to uh, give me a chair and to let me think for 24 hours straight. So to think for 24 hours straight. And in order to make this rigorous, I had a factory time clock that was set up, and I would take a time card, and I would punch in, I would sit down, think a thought, and when I thought it, I would then punch out and then punch in on the next one, and I went on like this for a full 24 hours. But, of course, I wanted people to understand, and I wanted myself to think of this as art, so as a result, I felt that I needed to contextualize appropriately, so I had alternately a still-life bowl of fruit set up or a model who was posing nude. And the thoughts that I had over that time span were the artwork. And if you wanted to purchase one of these works, you could do so by going to the dealer and revealing your annual income. And the dealer would then prorate my thoughts so that you would pay minute for minute for my thoughts whatever it was that you yourself were paid. You didn't get much for this, as I said earlier, I really wanted to make this conceptual, and so therefore what you did get was you got the factory time card punched as a receipt. No information whatsoever about what it was that I had thought, because that wouldn't be the thought, it would be a representation of it, and it would get everything completely mixed up. So I could perhaps have gone on like this, 
24 hours, 48 hours insanity. I could have perhaps had some sort of a career as a conceptual artist, but somehow I just didn't have it in me. Somehow it just did not seem sufficient. And what did seem interesting to me was the way in which it related back to what I thought I was going to become before I decided that I was going to become a conceptual artist. And that was a philosopher. Now, my idea of being a philosopher was the same sort of idea that all of you had at three or four years old, which was that you think about things and you talk about them, and it's all this very kind of open-ended, great conversation. So I went off to school and I studied philosophy and found that it was all very interesting and well worthwhile, but the sorts of things that we were talking about and the ways we were doing so, well, my parents didn't seem particularly interested. And that told me something. There was something, I think, that was happening there that had much more potential than what was happening within the realm of professional philosophy. And I wanted to find a way to do that to find a way back to that sort of naive idea of philosophy that I had as a child. And I realized that what I had been doing, sitting in that gallery thinking for 24 hours, might be a way forward. That is to say that, in a sense, what I was doing was I was not only selling art, not doing a very good job of it, by the way. I think we did about $75 worth of business in the entire 24 hours. But I was also in the case of this project, I think that I was thinking about thought. There was a way in which when you try to make a thought manifest by way of this time card, when you try to make it a commodity, it, it, it calls to mind all sorts of thoughts about what is a thought. And so I came to start thinking of this as a sort of a thought experiment. A thought experiments were something that I learned about in school, and they interested me very much, and they were also kind of disappointing. Because a thought experiment, generally speaking, was something that you would do in a journal in the way of a sort of a, a, an exercise in argumentation, taking a, a counterfactual that was very obviously so as a way of being able to make your own point. I never had any point. That was what was interesting to me about philosophy, was that it was about questions. And I've always been sort of allergic to answers, except as a way of getting to more questions. So I always thought that a thought experiment ought to be genuinely experimental, that there should be a way in which to undertake that thought experiment out in the world in a way that it would be totally open-ended and that the conclusion would be something that was discovered. And so I came to start thinking of myself as an experimental philosopher and took that as my new job. To give you a few examples of what sorts of things an experimental philosopher does, and there's exactly one of us that I'm aware of, <laughs> it, what, one good example probably is from a few years ago when I went into time management. Now, a lot of people have done that before, and there's a lot of money to be made. Franklin Covey, for instance, is a great example, and definitely you don't want to try to compete with them. But at the same time, what they were doing seemed to me to be somehow not really what they claimed they were doing. And none of the other time management services or companies did either, because they weren't really managing time. They were managing you. In fact, what they were doing was making you work harder or faster and get less sleep and 
be more miserable. And generally speaking, they were either convincing you that you wanted to do that, or they were convincing your company that this was a way in which to coerce you to do so. And none of that really seemed to me like it had anything to do whatsoever with managing time. But at the same time, I realized that there was a way in which you could manage time, and that we had already the science to do it for 100 years. Of course, I'm talking about relativity. I'm talking about Einstein. Time dilation is one of the inherent qualities in relativity that where you have gravitation, there's a warp in time that your time relative to a frame of reference to another, another place where you have less of a gravitational attraction or less mass, that the time is going to be moving more slowly. Well, that seems like the basis for some sort of time management, that you could use gravity to manage time by way of time dilation, where, where you had more gravity and where others had less gravity, your time would be moving more slowly relative to them. And so I decided that I would try to market this. And I did so by creating time ingots. It seemed logical enough. I, I, I founded a company called Space Time Industries, and the, the time ingots were, as you can see, well, they were bars of lead that I bought on eBay. And I packaged them, though. And the thing about this technology is that you could very conveniently put one of these on your desk, and you would have, as your frame of reference, ever so slight an advantage over the person in the next cubicle. So. Granted, we're talking about a, a, a very, very small advantage, but then I realized that there were many other ways in which to use this sort of advantage that came courtesy of gravity and of Mr. Einstein. Namely, you could have what I came to call the time warp undershirt. A time warp undershirt puts greater density, more mass around your heart relative to the rest of your body especially your brain. And as a result, you end up with this very slight advantage of living just that little bit longer relative to how long you think you're living, or you get to think a little bit faster relative to how long you're living. I will grant you that this is a minimal effect. We're talking about perhaps a billionth of a billionth of, maybe a billionth of a second over the course of the entire length of time that the universe has been here. So you really need, in order to be able to feel this and to take advantage of this in a serious way, you need, well, you need a neutron star. So that's what I came up with as a way to move forward in this technology. Namely, I came up with a sort of an architecture that can be built on neutron stars, um, what I called an elevator house. And the concept of the elevator house was basically that every room was on a shaft, and you could arrange your life by the way that you arrange the rooms on these different shafts so as to be able to fully manage your time. And of course, up on the roof is the garden where plants are growing relatively quickly compared to your life, and you're able, therefore, to have strawberries, as many as you want, whenever you want them. But this is all still sort of selfish and still sort of not fully managing time to the full potential, I don't believe. I think that where it gets interesting is where it gets communal. That is to say, not to manage time just for yourself, but what if an entire community had time management in this 
relativistic way. Well, I decided to design some cities. I decided to go into urban planning. Why not? I'm an experimental philosopher after all. And so what I did was I designed a few cities. Now, for my cities, what I did was I used the equivalence of velocity to mass because it was easier, at least it was easier to make some blueprints, and so I ended up with cities like this. The cities have different districts that are spinning very, very fast, but at different rates relative to each other. Those of you who uh, know clock making are able probably to figure out that what's going on right here is that the residential district is spinning at a rate that is going to give you a relatively long lifespan compared to those are trees, that's the agricultural district on the other side, so you get to eat well. And in the middle is the industrial district, which frankly we do need our iPhones and other plastic things, but not too many of them, so it seemed like it really belonged in the middle. And so I then went ahead and I came up with some other uh, cities that could also be built along these lines and submitted these out into the world, totally open source for any government that wished to take it on and to build one of these. Nobody's done it yet, I have to tell you. But it is also interesting to me that it got quite a lot of attention. That, for instance, Archetizer, one of the architectural trade publications, wrote it up. And not only them, but also the Wall Street Journal. And this is interesting to me. I mean, not only is it an excuse for me to boast, it also is interesting from the standpoint of what I was talking about earlier. Namely, how to do philosophy in public, in a way that engages people in a broad conversation where what it's about kind of comes out of the conversation itself. And so that you end up with, in the case of a project like this, all sorts of things falling out of it, all sorts of ideas that I certainly didn't have going into it, and I probably ended up stealing from other people as I was having conversations with them. But really, in terms of how we think about time, in our society and the way in which the arrangement of time and the understanding of time in communal terms fundamentally changes time as experienced and how society can be built in ways perhaps not using quite the same amount of elaborate clockwork as I've done, but in ways that might be truer to the relationship that we have through time. Just to give you quickly another example of the sort of thing that I do as an experimental philosopher, I, I got interested in, in, in time travel and uh, thinking about, for instance, how would you get Napoleon here now? Well, you can't do it very easily. He's dead, for instance. But I figured out that you actually could sort of do it if you were to clone him. But cloning in its own right has all sorts of uh, problems. And I'm not just talking about the ethics, I'm talking about the practicality of it. And so I didn't want to get into any of that because I don't really have any background in biology, for instance. So I realized that there was actually a much easier way to go about it. That none of the cloning agencies that I was aware of were actually undertaking. And that was that within genetics, increasingly there is a tension to and interest in, in epigenetics. Epigenetics is effectively the turning on and off of genes as a result of how you experience the world around you, toxins and food and all of these various uh, chemicals in particular are affecting which genes are expressed and when. 
So if you take, for instance, a pair of twins, at birth, you can't tell them apart, probably. But at age 20, you probably can. And at age 60, you most certainly can. They start to, even if they are identical, they start not to be identical, and that is courtesy of epigenetics. So what if you were to take that and do the opposite? What if you were, instead of having this sort of divergence, have a convergence? What if you were to become Napoleon epigenetically? That is to say, my idea was in starting this cloning agency that I would provide the means for you to become Napoleonic. And that meant taking in a lot of chemicals that you probably don't want to. Because Napoleon, as I researched, it turns out that he ate a chicken every day with the skin on, so a lot of cholesterol. He also was shot on the battlefield. Lead is something that you need to take in. That's the, the, the white container there. Uh, you also will need some arsenic and some mercury because those were considered to be cures for things back in the day. And so if you were to take these, you could, epigenetically speaking, by turning on and off your genes, become Napoleon or more, more like Napoleon. And you can do this not only for Napoleon. Of course, you can also do it for, well, for instance, uh, Jesus Christ would be relatively easy as well, taking a Mediterranean diet would be certainly a part of it, but also you would certainly want a lot of iron given the nails and all that. And so there becomes this enormous potential out there and it becomes even more interesting when you think about what happens when you start mixing and matching. Napoleon and Jesus Christ mixed into a single character and you can do it just by taking all of these noxious chemicals. Well, noxious, and nobody has done it. But once again, there has been considerable interest, including in nature in this instance, that has come about, I believe, through this sort of public conversation that happens around this experiment, which is really a, a thought experiment, that when you start thinking about cloning and epigenetics in this way, you start to think about identity in more fluid ways, and you also even start to think about, about history in more fluid ways. If, in fact, we no longer have the determinacy, genetically speaking, that is what leads us to think of one generation leading to another, if there is some sort of a way in which there's more flux, does that fundamentally change our ideas about time and our sense of history itself? So all of that is in the past. What I want to do now is to talk to you about the future. And for me, the future began last year in Berlin. That is where I decided to develop a camera with an exposure time of 100 years. Now, the camera is not your ordinary device. It's not your iPhone, for instance. It is, in fact, the simplest of cameras because anything complicated is liable to break and I probably couldn't make it anyway. So what I have done, starting in Berlin, was to make a camera that is a pinhole camera. In other words, it's a camera that lets in very little light through a pinhole that is focused onto what ordinarily would be 
a piece of film. Well, any film is going to spoil relatively quickly. I've managed to, with my own cyanotype chemistry, make exposures that are on the order of perhaps a week. And I know people who have managed to do so, I believe, up to a couple years through various tricks. And that's well and good, but it certainly is by no means a century. So the way in which this camera works is it doesn't use ordinary film. It uses something much more common and much more simple, which is ordinary black paper. Now, if you think about a book on your coffee table, for instance, and you look at it, you'll see that it probably has started to fade, or a poster on your wall, and it will continue to do so in sunlight. Well, the same thing will happen for a piece of ordinary black paper, but if you put that paper into a camera, letting in very little light through a pinhole, what you're doing is you're projecting the scene in front of the camera, but light is projected onto the paper in a way that the paper will gradually bleach, very, very slowly taking in an image. The image will not be static because presumably whatever you're photographing is going to change over that 100-year period. So if you think about if the camera is out in a city and there are some small houses, and those houses get torn down after 20 years, and a skyscraper gets built up in their place and is there for the, for the next 80, just to simplify, you would see the shadow, a ghost of those houses against the bolder skyscraper, sort of like in sports photography, when you see a basketball player moving very fast across a court, where the court is very boldly in place, in view, and the basketball player is sort of ghostly. And so what you end up with is not so much a photograph as you end up with a movie, all in a single frame, of that full span of 100 years. Now, why that interested me in Berlin was watching the city undergoing rapid and rampant development, so incredibly fast that every time that I went back there, it was as if it were a different city. And so I was started to think about how you might make a camera that would be able to take that in, that would serve as a sort of a surveillance camera in the hands of those most affected by everything that we do, all the decisions that we make, yet least powerful to make any decisions, that is to say, those not yet born. And so the idea in Berlin was to build these cameras as surveillance cameras that could be taken out into the field and hidden away, and in 100 years, the images would be brought in. So I worked with a gallery called Team Titanic. We built 100 of them. And we then made them available to anyone who wanted to take one and to hide it. If you wanted to take one, you gave a deposit of 10 euros, took a camera, hid it somewhere, anywhere that you wanted in Berlin, didn't tell anybody. Except when you got to be very old, you would tell a child where you had put it. Or you would write it into your will. And in 100 years, those children, then grown up, would bring the cameras back to Team Titanic where they would get the 10 euro deposit. No guarantees about what it's worth, but nevertheless, you would get something in return, and then there would be an exhibition, 100 years of change all in that image. And so the idea was really to engage people, to engage the children of today in a way that they were actively taking a part in putting these cameras out in the world. And not only those who were directly involved, but also 
those who heard about it, who read about it. And it was all over the place. We got it into the newspapers. We got a conversation going about this, that the cameras became a sort of a, a, a constant presence and remain for the next 100 years, a sort of constant presence in the city. You can think of them as sort of black boxes in that sense that are documenting and therefore are, well, it's a sort of documentary photography in the worst possible way because documentary photographers are not supposed to interfere. These photographs manifestly do interfere because you don't know where they are and yet you know that you could be being watched. And so the decisions that you make, you perhaps feel a little bit more accountable for those and perhaps feel some sort of a relationship to those in the far future. Well, of course, Berlin isn't the only city undergoing rapid gentrification and transformation. We're in one right now. And that is why, in collaboration with the Long Now Foundation, we are going to be bringing this project to San Francisco. And I am hoping that all of you will participate. Tonight, after the talk, we are going to have the supplies for all of you to make these cameras and to go and to hide them out in the city. And in 100 years, I have been assured that there will be an exhibition at the interval. I will not be here to give a talk about it, but there will be an exhibition where the results of these will be visible for all. But I didn't stop there, and so I won't stop talking now. I will get back to the 100-year camera later on when you'll have the chance to build them. I, I continued to get more ambitious and figured, well, if you've got 100 years, then why not 1,000? Well, 1,000 years is a larger number than 100. <laughs> and therefore, there are different issues, different problems that have to be addressed. Namely, the sort of tin can that I'm showing you right there, whether it lasts for 100 years is definitely debatable, and we could debate it later. 1,000 years, though, I think that I probably would have to agree with you that there's not much chance. So I started to ransack fields that know a little bit about time, that is to say, archaeology and art conservation. And I use those as the basis for building a camera that could make it exposure 1,000 years in length. So the camera has a body that is built out of pure copper, a metal that we know very well over long periods of time, that it takes on a patina that serves as a protective surface that prevents further corrosion. All of which is well and good, except for when you start thinking about the pinhole itself, which you don't want any corrosion whatsoever happening. And so therefore, the pinhole is pierced through a plate of 24 karat gold. The film is probably the trickiest part. Black paper maybe is not the best way to go, but we do know that oil painting lasts for a very long time. And we also know that oil painting, at least older oil paints, organic paints, are problematic. They have what is called inherent vice, which is the bane of existence for every art conservator. But for me was actually the way in which I could go about solving this problem. That is to say that that was potentially advantageous. If I were to take one of these pigments that we knew would fade over a long time. That is, in this case, a pigment that is known as rose matter, which is made from a root and has been used for thousands of years. And I were to use an oil paint made out of that, where we know that this oil paint has been used for 
more than 500 years and in fact has been used on copper because we have Renaissance copper paintings and where we know a lot about how those paintings were made, I then was able to go and to make the camera, which involves some rather curious ingredients, one of which is you have to rub the copper in garlic before you start painting on it, that I could build cameras that had this thousand-year-long exposure. And so the first one I built, I just put up in Arizona at Arizona State University, built into the wall of the Arizona State University Art Museum. And they have the camera on a thousand-year loan. There is paperwork. They have to return it. But the photograph is donated to them at the end of the thousand years and already has a 3,015 accession number assigned to it. So that was the first one. And then the second one, I am next week going to Amherst, Massachusetts, to Amherst College, to install one at the Mead Art Museum. And that will go in an old steeple. And it will not be looking out, as in the case of the Arizona one, on a city, but we'll be looking out on the Holyoke Mountain Range, which is, relatively speaking, a natural environment with many, many microclimates. And so you see two more or less identical cameras, two very different sorts of pictures that I'm setting out to take. And that is fully intentional. Because I think that when you move from 100 years to 1,000, things get interesting in different ways. You're no longer talking about some sort of a direct generational kind of handoff anymore. What you're talking about instead is looking into deep time. That is to say, you're looking at the way in which the things that we do now by way of how they affect the environment, how they affect the climate, for example, will change what happens and how people live or don't in the far future. And cities are potentially that future. There's a good argument to be made that cities have the efficiency that allows for people to live sustainably in the long term that would not exist in any other sort of arrangement. But at the same time, cities are highly perilous because they're incredibly wasteful. And having a city that is in Arizona where you have chronic water shortage is particularly perilous. And yet Tempe seems to me a particularly interesting case because it is both of those things and also because it's a city that is forming of its own momentum out of suburbia in a way that I think cities are likely to do. So in that case, we're looking at a city. In the other case, we're looking at what we might call nature, though that is always, of course, arguable. We are looking at the way in which vegetation changes over deep time. And so we have a gamut here. We have a way in which through these cameras, which I hope are only the first two of many that can be defined through this gamut to be in many places around the world, we have this way in which these cameras are allowing us to, to look into the far future and look back upon ourselves from the far future. Because the fact is that we are biologically really not equipped to think in deep time because deep time has never been something we've had to or been able to grapple with. The hand axe, which is basically the technology that we evolved with to the extent that we evolved with any technology, you couldn't really change the climate over thousands or tens of thousands of years. We now have the technological means to do so, but we are evolutionarily speaking nowhere in a place that we know how to grapple with that sort of power. So 
I think that maybe what we need are mental prostheses. And I think that they can be technological. And I think that a camera like this, a thousand-year camera, can provide that as a way, at this monumental scale, looking into the future, where we can see the future in our imagination, imagining what is happening on that film in order then to project ourselves into that future, looking back on ourselves to have a sort of a feedback loop. And those cameras, I believe, can operate in conjunction with the 100-year cameras. And I believe that all of this needs to be taken up by UNESCO because, frankly, I've run out of space in my apartment. And I think that UNESCO could do this in a way that would be very inexpensive by having 100-year cameras, such as the one that I've used as the design for my poster at Amherst College, that would be incredibly inexpensive and therefore could be ubiquitous. They're made out of cardboard. Yes, 100 years is a lot to ask of a piece of cardboard, but go to the library and you'll see plenty of cardboard and paper that has lasted longer than that. So that technically is not really a problem. You can make it, you can expect very few of them to last. And if you make this a birthright where every child gets one of these cameras and the cameras go out into the world, you're going to have billions of these cameras out there. And in 100 years, they're going to start coming in every day. And there can be an exhibition every day, this worldwide view showing the 100 years of change. And yet, at the same time, with more cameras going out in this sort of iterative process that builds a sort of relationship that we might have with those who will come after us, while at the same time, the thousand-year cameras, as these sentinels built into every city, as these sort of monumental cameras, can provide that longer-term view that we can have all of that kind of working within our mind all simultaneously. Now, for those of you keeping count, I haven't yet gotten to 5,000 years, and I'm already over 30 minutes. But if you'll allow me just to go on and humor one more idea, one more project that I would like to leave you with, that is what I am planning to do next. And I haven't yet talked about this. This is the first time that I am saying anything at all about it. What I am planning to do is to create a calendar. There are a lot of those. There's the Gregorian calendar, for example. And the calendars that we have are very regular. They are more regular than the spin of the planet. And they're certainly more regular than life on Earth. And so that got me thinking about whether you could have a different kind of a calendar, a calendar that would, in fact, be true to life in terms of the fact that it would keep time according to how life was lived on this planet. Well, those calendars are actually all around us. Uh, they're called trees, and trees will grow a ring every year, and the girth of that ring is determined by climate, by uh, rainfall, weather patterns, and so forth. But we don't tend to see them in that way unless we saw them down. And to me, it seems that you could, in fact, make a tree operate as a calendar by Taking that tree, and I am proposing a, a bristlecone pine, a tree with a 5,000-year lifespan, and putting milestones around it. Well, not exactly milestones, but century stones, or stones with a 500-year period between stones, set at regular intervals according to if the calendar, if the tree were to grow at the rate that it is right now, where would it be in 500 years? At that point, it will grow large enough that because of its strength, it will turn over that stone and a thousand years and so forth, up to 5,000. But of course, it will fall out of sync. It won't, it won't work out 
that, that 500 years will be the same 500 years as you have marked on your Gregorian calendar. And to me, that is where it really gets interesting because I don't know which calendar in that case we would say was right. I don't know how we would account for time if we had these two different kinds of calendars that were simultaneously keeping time, one of which was celestial, one of which was abstract, and the other of which was manifestly terrestrial and was really about the world as we exist in it, the world in which we are living in now. So where to get a bristlecone pine? Well, it just so happens that I know some people who have more than one of them. The Long Now Foundation happens to have this space, more than a space. It's 800-odd acres in eastern Nevada, Mount Washington. They bought it back in the 90s, and it just so happens to have the world's largest bristlecone pine forest in private hands. This is the ideal space, and I've already started talking with the Long Now Foundation about how we might implement this, to put the calendar there that would be able for the next 5,000 5, years to keep time on our planet. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take really getting out there into the world to attempt to make this come about. But the more that I think about it, the more that it seems worthwhile than sitting and thinking in a chair. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. So this is the world premiere of this. And is what's the the official? Is there an official name for the? We are calling it uh, Centuries of the Bristlecone. Centuries of the Bristlecone. So this is this is it. This is your this is the grand uh, revealing of it. There's still a lot of details to be worked out. Yes, we have five thousand years plus ahead of us. Yeah. yeah. So uh, look forward to those committee meetings. They're going to be fantastic. Um, <laughs> Uh, so uh, thank you so much. Um, so we're going to take your questions in a second. One thing we hadn't really touched on that I wanted to just quickly do um, is we've got a couple of your books in the back that are, uh, yes, that are I, here for sale. Do you, you want to say I, some, I, a thing I, or two I write, about them? Sure. I, I write books, too. Um, you know, being an experimental philosopher is not the best way to make a living, so I also found the second worst way to make a living. Um, and... <laughs> So these are two of my most recent books, both published uh, by Oxford University Press, one of which is on the coevolution of science, language, and technology based on my work for Wired Magazine, where I write the Jargon Watch column every month. And the other one is making an argument that art forgeries are the great art of our time. And um, it's a long argument. I don't know that I agree with it, but um, <laughs> nevertheless, I put it out there as a manifesto and as an advertisement for myself. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so who has a question for, for Jonathan? Do we have uh, in the back? So, so the question is uh, for people to be able to see the images which are currently trapped in a small chamber. Um, as they're evolving. Yeah, as they're evolving. So two answers there, because there was implicit in that question another question that you didn't know you were asking, but I'll take it as a chance to answer it anyway, and that is to do with accessibility. One thing that I have thought about in terms of making these cameras is how to make them where you can make no assumptions whatsoever about 
where we will be technologically speaking in 100, let alone 1,000 years. That is to say that if we were to use your, uh, your iPhone, for instance, probably nobody would know how to operate it then. So the cameras not only are not digital, but they make an image without any need for post-processing at all. The image fades into the camera so that the moment you open it, it's there. You don't need any sort of technology in place other than some sort of a set of eyes, and I believe even compound eyes would do the trick. So that doesn't answer your question. To answer your question, yes, absolutely, it is something that could be done. All of this is open source, and I would urge you to do it. I, I think that the more ways in which this is undertaken, the greater the plurality of it, the better. That said, that isn't the way that I've gone about it, because I think that what we really need, as I said earlier, is a mental prosthesis that allows us to operate and to think in deep time. And I think that being able to open that camera and look inside becomes much more of a technological or visual experience and much less of a psychological one at the level of being able to envision and being able to imagine, and through that imagination, being able to change, being able even to act rather uh, foolishly in the sense of being overly optimistic. What could be inside that camera could be quite grim, but your belief that it is not so bad maybe would make it so that you would be less likely just to go along with it. I don't know, but I think that there is a way in which having the cameras inaccessible for that full thousand years or 100 years works a lot better, and also it takes me off the hook, you know? I, we're, 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 we're very much in beta here, a uh, 100 years, we can start to talk about the bracketing process, and I won't be around, and so I'm not going to be blamed. All right. Uh, other questions for Jonathan? Um, so as an experimental philosopher, so you, as far as you know, you're the only practicing experimental philosopher? I stole this, um, as most things, from a very old job title, um, there were natural philosophers, and there also were sometimes experimental philosophers back several centuries ago. And it was never quite clear which was which. I don't think that there really was a distinction. But I didn't, I've always had a fondness for natural philosophy as a sort of a dilettante enterprise. And as you can all tell by now, I am a dilettante. That's why my business cards say untitled. And so that sort of universal curiosity was something that was present in those who called themselves natural philosophers or experimental philosophers way back. And I would like to try to bring that into the present, not only for myself, but to urge others also to become experimental philosophers and to undertake these sorts of open-ended public conversations through what they do following, following your curiosity. So, I've, I've thought, oh, I'm sorry, so do you want no, to... So capturing other questions? senses over, over time, what's... I have thought about sound in particular and looking at clockwork, and there are some people in this room who know a bit more about clockwork than I do, uh, but looking at ways in which clockwork and magnetism might operate over, if not a thousand years, potentially a thousand years, at least over a hundred years. It, it seems that... In concept, it would be relatively trivial to describe this. In 
terms of building it, probably it would be considerably more difficult. I think that why it doesn't interest me as much as what happens with photography is because it is manifestly temporal in its own right. And I think that the question that, that would need to be asked would be, is there a way in which to allow sound to accrue that it was not just a really long eight-track tape? Is there a way in which sound could pile on top of sound and that there could be some sort of a renormalizing process, perhaps, that would make it so it just didn't get more and more noisy, but that you would end up with some sort of a layered sound. It makes me, as I'm riffing here, it makes me think of what John Adams did for the sound of the atomic bomb at the end of Dr. Atomic, where he made this sound by layering all the sounds that he could possibly find. And this was, I think, very interesting in a conceptual way in terms of how to think about sound. But it was this incredibly complex sound built out of all these sounds. And so perhaps the cameras can give some sort of a clue into how we might think about recording sound in a way that would not be either recorded for 100 years and then speed it up and have everyone speaking like Mickey Mouse, or recorded for 100 years and have to then spend the next 100 years listening to some really boring stuff. But again, this is all put out there in the world for everyone to engage and to attempt to find other ways to go about it. Because they're, they're, I, I don't claim to have any creativity. I simply seem to be the cheapest laborer available and have the naivete to think that doing something like this is worthwhile. And when I do it, I find that people congregate around it, and I find that interesting ideas come about. So um, a quick question for folks who haven't followed you before. How, what's the best way for people to track what you are doing next? You're oh, on. I am terrible at that sort of thing. Um, so. I show at Modernism Gallery in San Francisco once a year, or at least so far they have tolerated that. Um, and I hope that they will continue to do so. And anyone who wishes to leave email contact, I can put you onto that mailing list. It's a very good question, how to make experimental philosophy a viable profession. And I guess one answer is that society doesn't have to if people will only do it on their own. That's not a good answer, but that is an answer. And uh, the reason that I want to give that as my initial answer is, first of all, because that's what I do and I can speak from experience. And second, because I am wary of the way in which these things change as they become institutionalized. I, as I said, I have a lot of interest in professional philosophy, as done in academia. And I've remained in contact with those people. And they don't totally hate me. But at the same time, it, it seems to me that the, the obligations in place when you start to build something institutionally in terms of accountability, in terms of um, the sort of relationships that need to be formalized, in some sense, those are going to ossify the exploratory process that I believe is the essence of experimental philosophy. That said, certainly society can do a lot more. And I think that you're seeing it here with Along Now. I think you're seeing it with Zero One. I think you're seeing it with foundations that are remarkably hands-off in terms of 
what they let you get away with, that they figured out that it has more to do with curating people than with shepherding ideas. And the great problem in what is often called sci-art is that it tends to end up with some powerful scientific institution saying, we need some illustrations of what we're doing, and we don't really want to spend a lot of money. Okay, so we'll get an artist, we'll give them a residency, and they'll do it for us. And they'd better do it exactly according to what we are trying, scientifically speaking, to express here. That doesn't work. That isn't interesting. It's fine, but it just isn't, to me, very interesting. What you need, rather than having that sort of top-down approach, institutionally speaking, is a different idea of what an institution is, and that is the institution that is providing a space and an opportunity and a venue and a way in which to get the work out into the world as well, because that, I think, is equally crucial. All right, and uh, just a reminder, uh, John's gonna be sticking around. We hope you'll stick around. And we have the cameras as well. Yeah, and we're, so we'll, we'll talk a little bit about those just to, just to close up. But uh, uh, his books are going to continue to be on sale, and he'll be signing the books if you have them as well. But why don't we talk a little more about the cameras. Um, so we've put, let's talk about the anatomy really quickly of, the, uh, of, of a century camera. Sure, I think that we even have that. Enjoy. There we go. Um, so there's a small tin. I don't know if we... So, so we have, uh, if, if you're going to be heading straight out, we actually have some piled at the door. Uh, you can pick one up. If you want to stick around, you can actually put the finishing touches on your uh, camera right here. And we actually have a bunch of extras, so you can get a couple if you'd like. Uh, do you want to just sort of show? Sure. The, the camera, as I said, is um, mercifully or shamefully simple. You got a tin can and you got a piece of paper inside of it. The paper is glued down and the can is glued shut. Before you do all that, you're gonna to want to uh, take, if you have the raw version, there's already a circle drawn. You're gonna cut it out. Um, you're then gonna notice that there is a center hole there, very faintly, that was used to draw the circle. That's gonna be your center point for taking it putting it down on top of the can, having been cut out, it's easy to see where it goes, taking the T-pin, punching a hole, uh, estimating for whether you're going to have your camera looking out or indoors, going to mrpinhole.com if you want to be really fussy about it, knowing that you're probably going to get it wrong anyway, but just kind of taking it as something that you're going to attempt anyway. And then you're going to take it, you're going to glue the paper into the back of the camera, you're then going to uh, glue the entire camera shut, take the piece of tape off the back, and then you're basically going to take the tape, make your shutter, because it's important to have a shutter on a 100-year camera. You'll notice I also had a shutter on my 1,000-year camera. I feel that if it's a camera, maybe there should be some sort of a shutter, some sort of sense of closure, so to speak. So here we have a sense of openture so to speak. You take the camera out into the world. I mean, because you're not going to be here in 100 years, presumably, or I'm not. So you take the camera, you put it out in the world, and hide it well, and then start your exposure. Remember where you put it, and then tell that child, we do not have the 10 euro incentive here, so this is a bit more of a leap of faith. Not even a ten dollars. San Francisco. So it's, it's a barter economy or something like that is what they talk so, about uh, here. 
Let's put on a show. Excellent. Yes. We have an offer from Xander. You will get your ticket price back in 100 years. So we now have a mechanism for accountability. And that's it. Your camera is done. You're ready to put it out in the world and pass it on to the next generation. So if you are grabbing one at the back, you're going to get. make sure you get one with a pin on it that will help you make your little hole and the piece of paper to go along with it. Uh, and we're also going to have a video showing up here, uh, which has been showing in the back as well, that shows you all the steps involved. And of course, you can ask Jonathan more about how to do it also. Um, thank you again so much for, for coming out tonight. We really appreciate it. Um, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Zero One and Jamie. Uh, and all of you, we hope to see you back here and if, very soon. If I can also yes, please. thank Jamie and Zero One, and also thank you uh, for hosting me. This camera is for you. This is a Century camera that I built out of an old brownie. Um, when you're ready to take the picture, flip the shutter open, 100 years, flip it shut, and you are ready to go. <laughs> all right. And, and I'm going to give you a long now challenge coin. We have to get them at the exact same. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks, Thank everyone. You. Let's have another big round of applause. Thanks for listening to The Conversations at the Interval. To find out more about our series and Long Now, go to theinterval.org or longnow.org. Thanks again.